Have you tried Music to Code by yet? Well, why not? Here's a comment Joe left on the website. This is also great music to mow by. I like listening to music while doing yard work to help the monotony of it seem less tedious. This past summer, I started listening to these tracks while doing yard work, and they worked great! I could let the music play in the background without focusing on it, and it seemed to help me concentrate on getting through my tasks. Thanks, Joe. And you know, now you can download the entire 13-track collection. That's over five and a half hours of music to code by for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. .NET Rocks, episode 1381, with guest Karupa Chenatambi. Recorded Friday, November 4th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, it's November here in the States. And uh, you know what that means, Thanksgiving. Yeah, crazy you know, time. Crazy time. <laughs> crazy cooking time. You know that uh, I've been on a ketogenic diet since February, and I reversed type 2 diabetes and lost 76 pounds, and life is good. Yep. And um, typically, if I was on a diet, even a low-carb diet, I would have dreaded the thought of Thanksgiving because everything is so, you know, carby. Stuffing, that's your problem. Stuffing, and it's and it's hard to uh, resist, you know? Right. But the way that I've been eating, I've completely lost all my desire for carbohydrates. And this year, I'm actually cooking an entire Thanksgiving ketogenic style. So we mm. will have stuffing. I've already made it using Mahler's low-carb bread. Um, I'm going to do the turkey, which is obviously already low-carb. But I'm going to make gravy and thicken it with uh, xanthan gum. Right. And uh, I'm going to make a, several veggie dishes and a cauliflower mash. And uh, I've documented all of that stuff on a Two Keto Dudes show, our Thanksgiving show. So if you're interested in surviving Thanksgiving in a low-carb world, uh, we'll set a link to that. But that's that's my story today. Cool. How you been? I'm all right. We had Thanksgiving in October like sensible people do. Yeah, like Canadians do. <laughs> no, maybe not sensible, but polite anyway. Well, we got it done. You know, it was <laughs> yeah. all good. How was it? It was it was turkey with all the trimmings. It was good fun. That's family, great. you know. And I I've got the space so that everybody comes to me. So, and I just realized that this show goes live on November thirtieth, six days after Thanksgiving. So I'm sure it everybody's was great. like, everybody's like, yeah, that's awesome, Carl. Where were you two weeks ago? <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> all right. Well, anyway, roll the music because I got something fun for Better No Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? Um, so as you know, I have a consulting firm called App Next and got a bunch of really, really smart guys working for me. And we're mm -hmm. doing a couple IoT projects here. And one of them uh, is a Python on Raspberry Pi client. Interesting. And uh, we wanted to know how to do a whole bunch of inter-client messaging and that kind of stuff. So SignalR came up as a possibility. We actually didn't go for SignalR in the end, 
but I went looking for a SignalR client for Python, and I found one. Oh. And SignalR, of course, is a way to abstract WebSockets, which makes it easy to interact with other clients and servers on a large scale. 1381.pwop.me brings you to github.com target process signalr-client-pi. So there you go. Ah, it's nice to know that there is a Python client, right? I mean, I've always thought that SignalR is very Microsoft-centric. Yeah, but it goes everywhere. There's a JavaScript client, obviously, and a nice. uh, Python client. That's cool, man. Nice find. Yeah. So there you go, if you're so inclined. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1342, the one we did with Chris Love back in August of 2016, when, you know, Chris is an advocate of, you know, don't use more frameworks than you need, you know, vanilla JS will do a ton for you. Don't use uh, any frameworks. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, well, he doesn't like fast food frameworks. Remember, he's actually written a couple. Yeah, that's so. true. And he always gets a ton of comments on the show. I mean, part of it is controversy. Part of it is he's really passionate yeah. about what he does. This comment comes from Davey. who says, I have to say I hate this attitude. As an IT contractor, the one thing I fear most is going into projects where someone rolled their own solution. Give me a badly written legacy Angular application any day. If the code was based on a known framework, you've got half a chance of rescuing things rather than being forced towards a complete rewrite. What kind of IT contractor are you, man? That's just more <laughs> billing hours right there. Yeah. Money in your pocket. Yeah. I'll admit that custom written frameworks often solve a problem in a much more elegant way. But they go stale quickly, especially if the creator is no longer with the firm. Right. Also, onboarding new developers is far quicker if the solution is based on widespread technology that they can Google for help on. Well, in general, it's easier to teach known frameworks or to find people who are already known. But right. when you really want them to know JavaScript well... And, and I'm with you that creators of frameworks need to document their stuff and, and preferably make it open source if you're going to keep it around. As others have noted, cherry picking of code saves bytes. Attitude is redundant once you incorporate tree shaking into your build. <laughs> talking about, of course, is the libraries for eliminating functions that are not being used. Right. So, yes, there are tools to make that better. But that being said, you know, this still comes back to skills with JavaScript. Right. Uh, so, Davey, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet because, you know, we like to read them while we're uh, cooking turkeys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that brings us to our guest today, Karupa Chinathambi, who spent most of his life trying to teach others to love web development as much as he does. Oh, it's a sad battle, isn't it? <laughs> In 1999, before blogging was even a word, he started posting tutorials on karupa.com. That's K-I-R-U-P-A dot com. In the years since then, he's written hundreds of articles, written a few books, recorded a bunch of videos, presented at countless conferences, and so on. When he isn't writing or talking about web development, he spends his waking hours helping make the web more awesome as a program manager in the web platform team at Microsoft. In his non-waking hours, he's probably sleeping or writing about himself in the third person. Meta funny there. You can find him on Twitter at Karupa, Facebook at facebook.com slash Karupa, YouTube at youtube.com slash user slash Karupa, or email at Karupa at Karupa.com. <laughs> I see a theme. <laughs> Feel free to contact Karupa anytime. Welcome, Karupa. How's it going, guys? Doing great. Doing great. 
And uh, what do you think of vanilla JS versus a known framework? That uh, seems to be a, a popular uh, debate these days. I mean, I'm going to walk, you know, the fine middle ground and say that VanillaJS works for many scenarios, but there are going to be situations, especially if you want to target older browsers and, you know, older devices that might not be as performant as the latest ones, where you might need to fall back on some, you know, API that you don't know much about. And instead of trying to remember all of those, using a library is actually pretty easy. But I personally, though, use VanillaJS as much as I can. Yeah. Especially if it's like I'm adding a very small piece of functionality that can be done in like 20 lines of code. Yeah. As opposed to adding like a 20 KB download to my application, I choose VanillaJS every time. Well, a 20 KB is not the sin. It's 300 KB, right? Yeah. Like there's some big frameworks out there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you guys might have seen the statistic from a few years ago, or maybe even like a year ago, where the average page download size of the typical website is almost the size of, like, of Doom and Wolfenstein 3D from the games we used to play <laughs> back in the day. So. Yeah. So it's you know it's not a not a good sign, but I'm 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 find the you know find the good fight to try to keep it as low as possible. I got to tell you, I'm a big fan of code generation, and lately I've been working on a generator that at the end of the process uses templates for um, dropping in HTML JavaScript to just do some vanilla JS things for basic stuff like you know you populate a list with uh, items from a, a query. It actually does the the callback and uh, handles uh, populating detail panels and things. And uh, that's been really helpful for me because I love vanilla JS, but I don't love the time it takes to write everything. And it seems like you do an awful lot of writing over and over and over again, the same stuff. <laughs> no, I completely agree with that. Yeah. So what's your, uh, what's your strategy here for progressive web apps? Now, first of all, what do you mean by progressive web apps? Okay, so basically, you know, progressive web apps are the web apps we've always used, always loved. They just have more capabilities now that make them more like native applications. So, mm. you know, in many ways, I think it's just a, it's a terminology that is being used by a lot of companies, including Microsoft, to describe web applications. And what they really do is have all the same functionality. You build it in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, but they have the ability to work offline, send you push notifications, be able to be indexed by search engines and app stores and so on with richer metadata. And just little things that you know you traditionally find with native applications, you can now have them in web applications as well. So in many ways, I think it's just a, a simple progression of just the technologies we've been using for many years, standardized and adding you know more app capabilities to them. So are we talking at the essence a spa, a single page application? It can be a spa or it can be a more traditional application as well. It's very, very open. But we're talking about stateful applications, right? They can be stateful. The the actual definition of progressive web apps, you know, it can be, you know, it's as broad as you want to really make it. The the way I look at it is this. As a user, I'm using my application. I want it to run really fast. I want it to work well when I have spotty internet connection. And I want it to be able to access some device capabilities. Just do a lot of stuff that I would just expect my application to do without really thinking about technology. Yeah. And what progressive web apps do is to give developers some of the tools and additional technologies to make that possible. So as a user, I never have to worry about getting a slightly less than awesome experience because a developer didn't decide to make a native application. Now, my experience with spas is the moment the web, the internet connection goes away, that spa is broken. Mm. Correct. It's over. Half the time, the page just goes blank. Like, it's a disaster. And progressive web apps kind of help with that. Basically, one of the technologies that powers progressive web apps is some of the service workers, which is a pretty new technology. It is something that, you know, we are implementing right now in Edge as we speak. Mm -hmm. 
And it's basically a network proxy that allows you to just have much richer offline capabilities. So hopefully in the future, when you visit a web app, a single page app, for example, poor network connectivity will not be a reason for your app to fall and burn. Okay. So these are things that are being implemented in browsers, right? I presume Chrome's at one point, Safari's at another point, Edge is at another point? Correct. Correct. And that's the challenging part for us as developers now is figuring out, am I browser dependent when I go after this feature? That is always going to be the challenge. And and the nice thing about it is, you know, it is the traditional web problem we've always had since the very beginning of the browsers. It's like, you know, each a, a subset of your users are in a version of the browser that supports functionality that another subset might not have. And so you have many ways of dealing with that. You know, one of them is by actually dealing with third-party libraries that help with this. But the other solutions actually, you know, a terminology you guys might have heard used a lot, which is progressive enhancement, where mm-hmm. you really try to build an application that targets the largest amount of users possible, and then incrementally adds additional functionality depending on more capabilities. So you basically are given a working solution that works for everyone. And then if you happen to have the latest and greatest feature set, you might get some additional features that just light up beautifully. I see from your blog, you're a fan of React. I am a fan of React. You know, it's uh, it's one of those things that I really like because React primarily does the view layer. So it allows me to still have my own vanilla JS in the background to do all the things that I like, like to do and I have been doing for many years, hmm. while deferring some of the more complicated UI management work, which is really the place where many browsers today have difficulty. It's really right. in, in the DOM and how quickly elements can be added and removed and manipulated on screen. Yeah. And React solves that problem. And it's very, very difficult for me to do it by myself without using a third-party library. So React is one of the things that, you know, goes kind of against my earlier statement that I try to use VanillaJS as much as I can. Yeah. It is VanillaJS for the controller and the model, but the view layer is entirely handled by a third-party library. Yeah, the React DOM is uh, a much cleaner than dealing with the regular DOM, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, eventually it's going to come up, there's going to be a point where all the browsers also implement really fast DOM algorithms to make these performance issues a non-issue. But that, you know, I think we're still a, a while, a while away from that. So until then, I think a library like React or even Angular has similar, similar functionality or even Vue.js. All of these things will still be very, very prevalent in developers' tool sets. Yeah, you know, I don't know if that's even actually going to be true, right? The browsers are always going to be pushing in slightly different directions. It's just that the subset that works across them grows a little bit each time. I just, I don't feel like we're that organized. That it just, you, you, admittedly, you, we've largely put modernizer away because it's like, if you're not running IE 11 or better, we're not dealing with you anymore. But to try and get all this functionality, I, I'm just excited that there's an edge to the web again. No pun intended. You know, <laughs> I went looking for Vue.js, and there's a whole bunch of products depending on how you spell it. But you're talking about the NPM package? I'm talking about v- V-U-E. V-U-E. Oh, V-U-E. Dot J-S. Let me take a look at that. Tell us about it. It's basically a lightweight framework, very similar to React in many ways, that kind of does a lot of the DOM diffing and really fast view updating you know, in a much more lightweight way, because React does require you to kind of you know, follow through their full model of using JSX, which is like a, like a slightly HTML-like syntax, and requires some modification to your development process to use it properly. Right. If you just want to get some of the advantages of it without dealing with the, all the advantages it brings to the table, something like Vue can actually help with that a bit. So I take it you're, you're is this fairly new for you, um, Vue, or which one did you discover first, React or Vue? I discovered React first. Yeah. 
So React's when I discovered first. But as you, you know, as as you guys probably know, as you start playing with things and start going to stack overflow for these issues, you're like you find out about other stuff that might also help out at the same time. So yeah. you, know, you have this whole list of things that you could fall back to if the main solution that seems to not work for a particular situation. Okay. And we're not talking about binding or anything like that with Vue, right? No. No. no, I mean the binding can be handled by whatever library you want, like Knockout, for yeah, example. Sure. You know your favorite library. And Ember is another great one. So the ni- the nice thing about the web really is that you can mix and match any sort of things that you want to use to make things work. And of course, the bad thing about the web is also that you can mix and match anything that makes things work, which makes debugging things that might not work, you know, pretty pretty complicated. So I got to ask, how long have you been doing CSS? Because I see you have some posts, great posts, by the way, on uh, CSS tips and tricks. Oh, CSS, I think probably since the very beginning when they were just, you know, all you could do was background color and font size. So probably late 1990s. <laughs> did wow. you write IE6 CSS? <laughs> I probably did. I mean, I started off web development back when Netscape Navigator had Netscape Composer, the editor they had for basically being able to draw and create websites without having to write actual HTML. Right. And then I moved on to Front Page Express, which came oh, out with man. IE4, IE5, I believe. And yeah. that's basically how it got started in web development. Hmm. And Front Page Express tried to do that, you know, GUI for web page development. And it wrote Correct. some nasty JavaScript on, and, and HTML under the hood. It did. It did. And, you know, and the thing is, tools for GUI tools for web development haven't really gone away. They're still around. Yeah. But they, they create much better markup and than they used to before. And they don't really deal with JavaScript much anymore at all because it's a very complex problem. Yeah. So where are we with web components? I really want a sort of not drag drop, but just like a single place where I can say, give me something complex that embodies HTML, JavaScript, CSS, all that, and just put it in there. Well, web components is, you know, it's in progress right now across all the major browsers. I think, you know, maybe Chrome might have already implemented a a subset of it. The way I look at it is if you want to use web components right now, there are a handful of great libraries you can use starting with like, I think Polymer is probably the most famous one right now. So, you know, it's one of those things where the library will help, you know, basically take care of your needs until all the browsers provide native support for it. But we're, we're getting close, but we're not there yet. Sounds like the web. <laughs> yeah. It's just like the web. Yes. <laughs> Are you using any of these frameworks like Polymer? I am not. I no. am not. I'm still, you know, the, the way I have my, you know, stuff I create is basically I, I create content for the most part, not really, you know, rich experiences like animations and like, you know, landing pages and so on. Mm. So my needs are very basic. Just display text and images as quickly as possible with very little load time and make sure it's accessible and so on. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is interesting. I'm, I'm looking at Polymer. It's been a while since I looked around in the web component sphere to see how, you know, progress was being made. But it actually looks pretty good just at, at cursory glancing. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I think, you, you know, you guys are both like familiar with XAML and .NET and all yeah, of this, sure. I'm assuming, very much so, right? Yeah, I mean, web components are really nothing more than like user controls that we had in XAML for many years. You just have a self-contained unit of both JavaScript and markup that you can just reuse across all the pages. Yeah. So in many ways, you know, if you're familiar with user controls, and I'm sure many of your audience will be, then web components will just immediately make sense to you. Got it. That also seems to be reflected in, in React's philosophy as well. That they're more about containing that all of those different aspects together rather than separating the HTML from the JavaScript from the CSS. Absolutely. I mean, React is one part just optimized really good in optimizing your DOM performance. It's mm-hmm. another part really about, you know, rethinking what the ideal workflow should be for you to build your apps. And that's really where they, you know, took some of these ideas of web components and, you know, made this JSX file. 
So there's some nice things in the React that kind of do that part also. It's, just, it's another kind of encapsulation. Correct. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify Prefix, an insanely cool and transparent and free profiler for developers. It runs in the background and catches bugs, including exceptions that get caught and thrown away before anyone knows you wrote them. Get detailed traces of every request. There's no messy configuration or code requirements, and best of all, it's fast and transparent. Hey, did I mention it's free? And not free like a puppy, free like beer. Download it now at prefix.netrocks.com. Uh, jumping back on the whole idea of progressive web apps, I mean, I, th- I know we hit on the service workers just, okay, now I can build a, a, an app in a browser that can deal with a broken connection. That's cool. But I got to presume there's more to it than that. Ah, yes. I mean, from a purely technical point of view, a progressive web app just needs service workers and a web application manifest, a JSON file that is kind of like an, an evolution of the meta tags we used to use for title and description that contains mm. more items like icon size, more information about your splash screen and tile images and and, and so on. But beyond that, a progressive web app is really just your normal web app. You want to make it responsive, make sure it falls all the right criteria to hit the widest audience possible, and just implement service workers and web, web application manifest. And that's pretty much it. So what's in the manifest? So the manifest contains information that can be used to tell a browser that your app, your website can be actually, you know, in, in the case of Chrome, for example, pinned to the home screen and launched directly as an application. So nice. you could you could specify information like the icon you want to use or the app name and the app description. Things that can be surfaced by the by the shell search functionality. So just metadata in JSON format. And and of course, this has always been the argument, especially in the mobile world, right? Is that looking up your favorites in a mobile web browser sucks. Yeah, You'd much rather correct. have an icon on the screen. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, it goes back to like just different workflows. And we've seen a lot of data that shows that on the desktop, people are pretty happy staying in their browser unless they really need to find an application for it. But right. on devices like your Xbox, your phones, and, you know, all these new kinds of devices out there, apps are really the way to go. So people tend to, you know, use the browser less and spend more time in apps. Even if those, you know, even if we take away the, the biggest apps they spend time on, like your Facebooks and Instagrams and Twitters, yeah. you still have a lot of time people spend in apps, very specialized needs that would normally be taken by the browser on a desktop where you have a mouse and keyboard. Well, and I would argue that part of that reason is that their mobile web page is that lousy. Absolutely. And and is constantly reminding them, we have an app that doesn't suck. We have an app that doesn't suck. <sighs> Um, yeah, and the other big thing is also that, you know, you, no matter how good your browsing experience on a mobile, you know, on device is, a, a large chunk of it is taken up by the browser Chrome, so you have very little space to actually view your content. And mm-hmm. one of the things Progressive Web Apps kind of solved that is if you were to, you know, and even in the case of Windows, when we install, if you were to install a Progressive Web App on your machine, it'll be running as a native UWP app. So you get a lot of the functionality without having to go through the you know process of packaging and building an application from scratch. But right. you basically just take your web app and we'll be, you know, one of the things we're proposing to do is if you have a web application manifest and you have a progressive web app, we will go through and create a hosted web app for you. So you don't have to do a lot of work to get a, a UWP application that you can find through the store and be able to install and, and just run with the same level of fidelity that you would any other application that you might have installed on your machine. Well, and that almost sounds Cordova-like at that point. I mean, I think it's a, Cordova is a little different in that it contains a lot of packaging runs in WebView. But one of the things that we're doing is that you don't have to do any special packaging of your own. You just create your website, 
don't create any modifications for it. You just make sure it runs great in the browser. And as long as you have the web application manifest, we'll create a hosted web app, which is running in our own version of the Bay host, which doesn't actually create any kind of indirection to displaying huh. your content. Well, and the que- the begs the question, when I go to update this app, do I have to resubmit it to the store or can I update it on the back end? And, and it'll- you can just update on the server itself. Like essentially hmm. think of the, think of what we're doing as like a really rich iframe. Nice. Yeah. Well, and this just seems to be the complaint, like folks that have gone down the mobile app path, especially on on consumer facing products, are perpetually battling the updates that Android and iOS and other platforms have breaking their apps. They get no notice. So, you know, everybody's hit at the same time when Apple drops a new version of the iOS, they force all the customers to upgrade. Now the app breaks. You're collecting your one star ratings while you're struggling to fix it. The app store approval process is backlogged because everybody's trying to do this at the same time. And, you know, two weeks later, you've got your new version. Yep. And then we get to go again. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's where you're going to see a lot of apps in the future moving towards a model where parts of the content can be updated without requiring an app store submission. I mean, yeah. if you're familiar with Meteor and some of the code push solutions that are out there, there are things that people do today that, to kind of make that process you know, more agile and less less painful. Right. So with the model with progressive web apps and even with hosted web apps, which we've been doing at Microsoft for the past two years, you, you kind of avoid that problem. But, and, it, and it is a huge, a huge issue without a doubt. Like that's not a small thing. So I'm, I'm excited that the way you guys have solved it with UWP, but it, it to me just encourages the progress, the progressive web app model saying, give me the benefit of the web where I can update whenever I want to, but I still want these appy features. Correct. And the biggest thing, like you mentioned earlier, is, you know, I think at this point, the offline connectivity piece is the biggest part because imagine if you're installing your application, you know, let's say there's a hosted web app or a progressive web app. We actually cache a lot of the content for the, for the makes your application experience and your first run experience. We cache it for you. So when you launch it for the first time, it doesn't matter if you have network connectivity or not. You get to see something very quickly on your screen without being bogged by the network itself. So that kind of, you know, solves the problem where historically web apps are great, but the problem is if you don't have network connectivity, like you mentioned, or in a subway, or you have like, you know, what we call Li-Fi. It says, you know, you have three bars of signal, but in reality, you're not getting any data coming down the, coming yeah. down the wires. Now, Li-Fi is a good term. I like that term a lot. I think I may be borrowing that. <laughs> exactly. So with progressive web apps, you get the best of both worlds in many ways. You get the best of both worlds in that, you know, consumers, you know, consumers don't care where your application's built in. They just want an experience that is fast, fluid, you know, does the things they want and then happens to work regardless of what their connection, you know, status is. And for developers, it makes it easier because like you mentioned, your update process is impl- you know, significantly simplified and yeah. you build in a technology that you probably are interested in building. You know, you're going to build a progressive web app if you don't care about HTML, CSS and JavaScript. So I think it's in many ways, I, I see a lot of good things coming from this. So the next couple of years will be pretty exciting in that front. You know, the, the used to be the solution was, let's just put internet connectivity everywhere. It's easier to build more out, more infrastructure than it is to build a good disconnected client. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's a, you, you will still see more places that will have greater internet connectivity than the rest of the world. But there are parts of the world where you know, connectivity is spotty and, you know, you don't have to go very far. Like I live in Seattle and if I were to take the, take some of the buses that go in the tunnels underground, I'm pretty much the same situation where I don't really get much connectivity. So they can stream Wi-Fi down there if they want, you know, (laughs) but, but I, 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 you know, I'm in Vancouver. We have hills too, right? The hills are a problem. Yeah. Trees, yeah, we can be hills. optimistic, but you know, it's still good to plan for fallback scenarios just you know, in case things happen. Because the first thing people are going to blame is not really the connection. They're going to probably blame your application. Yep, and you don't time. want people to you know, be left with a negative impression of what you've spent so much time creating. If the solution is simple, add a service worker. 
being blamed for internet outages is a, a staple of my existence, <laughs> not just with my customers, but with my family. Sure. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to generate a lot of comments for this show. You ready? Ready. JavaScript is dead. <laughs> Long live JavaScript. <laughs> Vanilla JS is stupid. <laughs> Angular sucks. Use <laughs> Angular at all costs. Write everything in Ruby. <laughs> My brother can do this in access. <laughs> okay, discuss. Nice. <laughs> and fight. Purse fight. <laughs> it's actually time to give away an Infragistics Ultimate to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But let me tell you about Ignite UI. This is the most complete HTML and JavaScript toolkit to build modern browser experiences on any device, desktop, tablet, or phone. Designed for the enterprise, you'll create high-performance, touch-first, responsive apps with Angular JS directives, bootstrap support, and Microsoft MVC server-side widgets. Check it out at igniteui.netrocks.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Tommy Adkins. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for you. Tommy wins the Infragistics Ultimate just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. If you don't know what that is, you got to join up. Go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree coming right up. Just a few days here. Coming right yeah. up to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And of course, we like to ask our guest, Karupa, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, today, what would you buy? You know, one of the things I haven't spent much time on, but I kind of wish I did was 3D printing. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think for $5,000, I think you don't, you know, you can get pretty complex in what you want, but I think I'd go for a pretty, you know, pretty hefty 3D printer. Okay. I have a recommendation. Oh. oh, what is it? In that particular price range, look at Formlabs. Formlabs. Most of the 3D printers are really derived from inkjet technology, where they literally are putting droplets of plastic down on a surface. Yeah. Formlabs goes the other way. They use a resin and then use a laser to harden it dynamically. So the, the consumable is different. The product comes out different. The precision is higher, but you can't really make them that cheaply. Hmm. So it's a, it's a bit more of a, there are no thousand dollar laser based printers, but in the three, in the $5,000 range, you get some pretty impressive ones. Wow. So, Good for Yeah. Me. It's, it's a, if you're going to go down that path, it's really interesting. All right. I will keep that in mind. I'm happy to spend your money, sir. I'm a professional <laughs> at it. <laughs> But, uh, it's interesting, you know, how this has gone, the, the whole 3D printing movement. Yeah, For sure certain, has. Certain, you know, the, certainly there is additive manufacturing has taken hold. SpaceX is big on this and a bunch of other companies. Boeing eliminated something like 30% of their inventory storage because they're now simply making airplane parts on demand from laser sintering machines. But uh, the home level, it's like, what did you want to make? What do you need? Mm. In fact, that's a question for you. Is like, what would you make with it? I, you know, that's a good question. I'm, I'm thinking in the back of my mind. You know, I don't have a specific item, but can you imagine? Like, I go to Amazon, I order something, instead of waiting like even a day or even like thirty or forty minutes for it to be delivered, kind of like with their with their you know immediately delivers service. Imagine that 
you basically point the order to your 3D printer and some schematics get uploaded and whatever you're looking for gets printed for you and you know you pretty much have it in a matter of a few minutes. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about these printers for finished product rather than just prototypes. But, Correct. Uh, yeah, they're very much an experiment and they make cool things, especially that Formlabs unit that they the look and feel most of the time with the with the plastic drip models it takes a fair bit of post production work, some sanding and filing and cleaning up and stuff. But the the resin ones come out pretty clean. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, I'm not sure if you guys follow some of the build announcements from last year, but my team actually built a Pandora box. It's literally an, an a three D printed uh, a miniature version of a boom box, and then hmm. put a Pandora Universal Windows you know UWP app on it, and then we it. demoed it as well. So it's actually pretty interesting that you know something like this would have never been thought possible like three four years ago but now for even for demos we're like yeah we just kind of used this tool to reprint it like literally the the demo that we wanted and then we were able to put something physical and uh, something digital in it as well so kind of like you know what we can create now isn't just just relegated to zeros and ones in the screen but actually tangible objects you can you can do stuff with yeah and then and then windows 10 has all this stuff built in now you plug a 3d printer and it goes oh i know what to do exactly that's very cool. Hey, I read with great interest on your blog, um, CSS animations, your article, and you did a YouTube video on it too, which is just great. And what I love about it is you make it so simple. And yet, you know, when I look at the uh, SVG um, graphics file that you have, I think to myself, wow, I wouldn't want to make these by hand. <laughs> how, how do you, that is correct. How do you I use Adobe Animate to create that SVG file. You know, yeah, things like... There are areas where tools really do help you out and creating image files, you know, even though you can do it manually, I, I highly recommend you don't. Yeah. So <laughs> what tool did you say you use? Adobe? I use Adobe Animate. Adobe the, Animate. Basically the evolution of what used to be Flash. Right. So this will generate an SVG file, which is a, a vector graphics image based on numbers and whatever else. Correct. Yeah. So you would use that instead of um, PNG files or graphic pixel versions. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Mostly because nowadays you have high DPI screens are much more common, especially on mobile devices. Sure. And mm -hmm. and SVG is great because I don't have to create like a you know a 300 DPI, 144 DPI, and a 72 DPI image. I can just right. have one SVG file. And that makes life so much simpler because I have a very small file that doesn't scale with the amount of DPI that a particular device is requesting assets for. That's cool. That's very good. So what other little gems can we find that you've been working on lately? I mean, just looking through your blog, there's so many great little nuggets of uh, how to make your web apps just cooler. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with that mostly because, you know, I, I started off at Microsoft working on the Blend team on, you know, making WPF XAML apps, you know, WPF and Serverlite just yeah. that much better. Because yeah. I really do feel that as people who are more visually oriented, like designers, for example, they have a major role to play in creating the kind of really cutting edge experiences that people kind of expect. And one of the biggest challenges is that either the tools or the education out there hasn't been great to communicate with them in a way that makes sense. So I do whatever I can to kind of help with that because I'm more of a visual learner. I mean, I, I majored in computer science, but everything I do is really around graphics and design and things like that. So I try to do what I can to make it possible for people who are not your hardcore developers to also be able to build apps and build them in a way that actually makes them pretty appealing to a larger audience. Yeah, very cool. 
There's always a balancing act with this between, you know, making the cool new UI and a new way to explore an app and using elements that people already understand, like that they'll recognize they're familiar with. I mean, it's easy to make fun of Battleship Gray WinForm apps, but people know where the help button is and where the file button is and what those things do. Oh, absolutely. And I think it also goes back to what kind of app you're building. You know, if you're building an app that is meant to be a supplement to an existing tool you're using, let's say like a simple word editor notes app, in those cases, you probably don't want to, you know, go too crazy because, you know, the people you're trying to target are expecting a certain kind of workflow. But if you take games or something that's more like more unique, like let's say my, my Uber app, for example, mm-hmm. in those cases, you know, I'm doing something that I don't really have any preconceived notion of what the app should look like. In those cases, I think we have a little bit more freedom to be able to to do some crazy stuff. Cool stuff, actually. Where do you fall on the hamburger icon? <laughs> you know, I'm indifferent to it. I, you know, I've, I've seen it so many times. I've used it so many times. At this point, right, by us even talking about it, everyone knows what a hamburger icon is, and we kind of know what it does. That's my thought now, too. It's like we've crossed the threshold. People know what it is. They know to click on it. But developers know it. Do users know it? I think there are enough apps now, even like natively in the OSs, where the equivalent of a hamburger icon is available, where yeah. I think it's just gotten to the point where, you know, I'm not going to, I have no opinion on whether it's a great idea or not, yeah. but it's been used enough number of times where you know that if you were to click it, you're going to get more options. You know, it might be right. a flyout menu, might be a drop down, might be something, but you're going to be getting more things to do than what you can see right now in your UI. And I think that's basically the, what it's trying to communicate. And if that's the case, it's done a pretty good job of it. Yeah, they, it's they're, the one thing they're not going to do is ignore it. And I think back to what version of Office was it where they, they had an icon or something that was really quite important, but it was sort of in a place where nobody would click on it to the point where they, I think they put out a patch to make it flicker so that somebody would notice it. Yeah, I mean, that's always a challenge with new UIs, especially in apps that people are, you know, are very accustomed to. Yeah, I think, you know, the three of us here, right, you know, we probably use new apps on a regular basis. So we're very good at like figuring things new. In fact, we probably even enjoy trying out new things just to see like how they've, you know, what decisions they made in designing the application itself. But, you know, you take like a typical user out there whose primary goal isn't really to learn the ins and outs of whatever application they're using. They're using the app as a, as a way of just getting something else done. I sure. can imagine that, you know, major UI changes can can come with a certain cost. But there's a design aesthetic. There's a metaphor here. There's a vision. If you don't understand it, it's because you're not worthy of this piece of software. <laughs> you know, that, that might work sometimes, Richard. You know, you, you know it's, it's hit or miss, right? It's hit or miss. Sometimes you can go with that attitude and then people will think you're a genius. And sometimes, you know, you end up like having to redesign your product because no one likes it. So Nobody's using uh, it. I wouldn't, I, w- I wouldn't bet the farm on going with that approach. Yep. Yeah. You can tell by how many people sit at your table at lunch. it's like if everybody's off doing their own thing you're like okay what did i do what did i say well and the the big thing is actually soliciting a response right meh is the response you're afraid of nobody cares but the nice thing is, though, right, one of the bigger challenges we have right now is the goal really is to, you know, you don't want to write your application multiple times for every platform. You want to build it just once. Right. But the the challenge, of course, is that on every platform, the UI metaphors are just slightly different to be one where you, you UI layer needs to be slightly more accommodating. But that's where you have, like, things like Ionic Framework, for example, where you, they do a really good job of, like, abstracting away some of those differences. So you still build your UI the way you want it. Right. But they will take care of putting the icons in the right place, making sure the icons are platform-centric, for example, and you also make sure the hamburger icon is not a hamburger icon on Android, but it might be something else on that is more appropriate for the platform. So it is a problem that 
a lot of companies are trying to solve in very interesting ways. And I think you'll see more innovation in that area in the next couple of, you know, I'm going to say months, actually, because years is way too long to think about when it comes to frameworks. I think that was a little foreshadowing, actually. <laughs> Maybe. I have, no, I have no idea on, like, you know, what's, what's coming up. You know, I'm not in the framework business anymore. Right. I'd say. We used Ionic at AppV Next for a project, and it worked great, and turned out the customer was really happy with it. And uh, th- I have nothing bad to say about Ionic. And they're betting big on PWAs as well. So, mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Are you a code gen guy? Do you like to write generators instead of having to rebuild your scaffolding, let's say, from scratch every time you sit down to write a project? No, not too much. Not too much. I'm not a code gen guy at all. I try to, I try to minimize the amount of time I spend setting up my environment, setting up everything other than actually writing the application I want. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of old school in that way. Well, do you have tools that help you, you know, do the same things over and over again? I do have the usual set of like, you know, Babel, Gulp, Browserify, you know, Webpack, all the various tools that web developers use to at least automate some of these things. And of course, some of that project I'm working on right now, I use Node as well to kind of simplify some of my, you know, dependency management, Mm. but nothing too crazy. Like I mentioned, most of my work is really just creating small, you know, one-off examples and then writing about it, which is lots of content. So I haven't really had the need to, to go too far into the, the tools, tools rat hole. Yeah. Should we talk a little bit about notifications? Because I know that's a, a part of PWA, and and uh, I don't know, it's a particular torment for me. Uh, what what torments you about it? Well, I'll, and this is totally me. So I like having multiple computers around me because I have them for different purposes. My main work machine has no email, no Twitter, like nothing pops up on it, so that I can focus on the work I'm supposed to be doing. Because I'm trying to harness my ADD for the forces of good. <laughs> But now that every flip and browser can do pop-ups, can do notifications, right? Like it's, I can't even have a browser open. Yeah. And and the thing is in the future with service workers, you don't need to have a browser up to even see a notification because one of the big things service workers do is they run the background. It's like a basically a background worker. So what they do is they constantly pull for updates and they also check for notifications. If a subscribed site is going to send you some notifications and you'll see them with or without a browser actually right. running. So yeah. be prepared for that world, Richard. I just want one computer that's not going, click me, click me, click me. Oh, yeah. No, look over here. Look over here. Squirrel. I think that is something that, you know, is uh, the browser vendors, us included, have to, you know, figure out ways to solve. And the other one is also app developers need to be more conscious about how they're going to respect the users, you know, space and time as well. And I think it's a, it's going to be a challenge. But let's be honest, browser vendors have absolutely no incentive to take that feature off the table because that's what generates revenue is a, is a great uh, feature from an app developer point of view because, you know, you get more face time with the user, et cetera. What do you think about that? Oh, no, I agree. You know, the real reason for notifications is so much data that shows that any e-commerce site that happens to enable push notifications, they get much better re-engagement. They get much better, you know, ultimately more dollars because the people who added something to a cart, for example, and forgot about it, they get a notification, they're reminded, they go and complete the order. So from that point of view, I agree. It's actually very, very good. But the thing is, you know, thinking beyond the browser, because these all happen not just with the browser running, but without the browser running, you can imagine that all the major OSs have notifications centers and you sure, can basically right. disable them if you want to just have you know 12 hours or infinite time to just not be disturbed so you can imagine that you can you have a lot of control over the notifications you do end up getting like for example right now I mean, because i'm doing a radio show with you guys right now i have my notifications you know, turned off right now and 
for all we know, I probably got a, you know, a bunch of messages on Skype, a bunch on my messages, and they're all, you know, probably hidden somewhere, but I don't get notified of them. And the way I feel is that in the future, you'll have more control over what you can and cannot do. For example, if you want to get notifications from Amazon, for example, about your status of your order or from, you know, food delivery service and where your food currently is, you can opt in and make sure that even though the site might be sending you notifications, you can only have the operating system show it to you if you really want to. Yeah, but we're going to have to, con- you know, attention is the new asset, right? And we're going to have to, we're going to have to take more thorough control of when people get to get our attention. Correct. And I agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, developers will probably every single website in the future, once service workers become the standard, pretty much every single one will probably start sending notifications. You know, I I fixed a misspelling in a title, it's a notification. So I think, yeah, I think it's going to be more of the operating system and you as a user to opt into it, you know, more responsibly. I mean, that being said, the notification engine is useful. It's it's part of what m- stops it being just a web app and makes it just an app. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So it, the challenge, I think, is using that well, that, that people are happy to see your notification, not, oh, no, here comes more notifications. Absolutely. And that's the... And that's ultimately the challenge as well. Cause, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you had to break it up, you can say that, you know, in the past, there was a very big distinction between an application written in the web technologies and an application written in native technologies, performance, and all these things. I think the future is going to be that there isn't really going to be much of a difference on the surface, but it'll be more on just how broad of an audience of developers are now able to build apps that was, you know, probably unreachable to them in the, in the past. And then what some of the challenges are of it, you know, would unbridled exceptions just continuously, you know, streaming your machine be a mm-hmm. problem you need to solve? I'm going to say yes. Yeah. It feels like the browser is just turning into this hosting environment for applications. Like it's just a smart client host now. Absolutely. Now, if I, I'm just guessing, but I'm going to guess that the browser's goal from the very beginning was to basically be that. You know, if you had your operating system was basically a window into stuff that was literally on your disk, your browser's in a window to the world that is actually on, on virtual disk, you know, linked by your internet connection. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. And this idea that I boot my machine and a bunch of copies of Chrome load up in the background, whether I know it or not, to manifest these notifications to get me back there. Correct. Because if you look at, you know, even progressive web apps, once you install them, you, you, what you're running behind the scenes is, you know, a version of the browser engine. You just don't realize it. So if you have, right. you know, Electron's a very popular technology these days for a lot of enterprise apps. And Electron under the covers uses Chromium for a lot of its rendering. So you can, you know, if you're running an app, it looks just looks and feels just like your native application that, you know, it's built for your operating system in mind. But if you, you know, look at the process that's running in the background, you see all these browser instances running because realistically, even though you're not seeing the address bar and your favorites and like, you know, the traditional browser UI, the browser is very much alive and doing its thing behind the scenes. Right. And for me as a developer to get that capability is pretty painless now, right? Like I don't have to write a lot of code to be able to be started up like that. Correct. You know, the ultimate goal I always felt is that, you know, people want apps. And as a developer, you should be able to build that kind of an app regardless of what technology you're particularly, you know, yeah. loyal to. You know, if you're a C-sharp developer, you should be able to build that application. If you're a web developer, you should be able to build that application as well. Technology and the limitations of it should never be the reason for why you can't build the app that, you know, that you are really going into trying to create. And I think we're getting there. Krupa, what is on your radar? Are you, what is basically the next cool thing that you plan to investigate and check out? 
one of the biggest things that like I kind of hinted at earlier is we have all these progressive web apps. We have them all over the internet and we'd be having more of them in the future. And I want to make discovery of them just better, you know, and what shape that takes. I'm not fully sure yet, but one of the things I've been, you know, throwing around with part of my team is imagine you go to the app store and we automatically have index all of these progressive web apps as native applications because the work is minimal because hmm. by you creating the manifest file, the web application manifest, you're sending a clear signal that you want your website to be more than just a website. You want it to be an app. You, you provide the tile icons. You provide the icons for your home screen or start screen. You did all this extra work, and there's no ambiguity on our part that, okay, you want your progressive web app to be treated like a normal application and be installed and run as a native application. So you get integration with the shell. You get integration with the notification center, which you know Richard mentioned is a, is, would be important for him. Mm-hmm. And you get all these advantages that you wouldn't have had before. But you know none of that stuff really matters if people can't find the app. And we mentioned on mobile devices – the app store is really where people go to find new things, even if there's a browser equivalent of it. So I'm just trying to figure out like, what is the best way of being able to take all those sites, find the high quality ones. We don't want to, we don't want to flood the flood people's, you know, app stores with really, you know, terrible apps, but how do we figure out a way to get these apps that developers intend to be treated as applications and get them into the user's home screen and then be able to have them use it in a meaningful way. Yeah. Very good. Awesome stuff. Well, I've clearly enjoyed your blog and your posts, and I love your writing style. It's very clear and concise. And uh, just keep doing what you're doing, man. It's awesome. No plans of stopping anytime soon. All right, Karupa, thanks. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band.